And open your Bibles with me this morning to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6, and we'll be looking this morning at the first eight verses of Genesis 6. In Genesis 6, we're transitioning uh, from the account of Adam and his descendants, ten generations after Adam, and now we're going to focus on this story of Noah and of his immediate descendants. And so the first five chapters, roughly, of Genesis are about Adam and then his sons, and the second five chapters, six through ten, this is Noah. And in our passage this morning, we won't quite get to Noah. We'll get to Noah right at the end. Um, but what's happening here is Moses is setting the stage for us to understand Noah and for us to understand what's going on behind this story of Noah and of his children. Even if you're not super familiar with Noah, if maybe you haven't even read these chapters before, you probably know about Noah, right? Um, we love to tell this story, right, because it's animals and because there's an ark. Even if you haven't heard the story, I'm sure you've seen a picture, right, because we love to draw pictures of the ark and of the rainbow and of the, of the animals. Probably it's the most common children's illustration from the Bible, right? It's on the front of the children's Bibles, and I've seen murals, right, of of Noah and the ark in all kinds of church nurseries, right? Because you've got the animals, and that's the animals are fun. But it's been pointed out before um, that in some ways, the scene of Noah's ark is a sort of strange thing to put on children's coloring pages and in children's nurseries. Because behind the rainbow and the cute animals and the green trees after the flood, we deal with the whole question of the flood. And though Noah and seven of his family were saved through the flood, many thousands of people were killed under the judgment of God in the days of Noah as a result of this flood. That's not something we usually foreground when we think about the story of Noah. In some ways, maybe that makes us slightly uncomfortable to think about. And so this morning, as we're setting the stage for the story of Noah, I kind of want to ask the question, what's behind the flood? Why the flood? Why did God choose to wipe out almost all of humanity in the days of Noah? What was going on? And Moses is going to answer that question for us this morning as he sets the stage for Noah in the first eight verses of Genesis chapter 6. And basically what we're going to see is that in the days of Noah, wickedness and sin had multiplied on the face of the earth. And what I want us to see by the end of the morning is that God's heart grieves over sin. God is deeply grieved by sin, and he cannot abide it in his world. Okay? God is deeply grieved by sin, and he, he will rid his world of it. Okay? 
So we're going to see this determination of God here in Genesis 6. And by the end of the morning, I, I want us both to deeply feel the grief of God over sin and also to understand how it is that we can escape his wrath through Jesus Christ. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Let's read the passage together. Genesis 6, verses 1 through 8. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we're dealing this morning with a, a heavy passage, a passage which some of it is difficult to understand. And so we pray that you would be among us this morning, that by your Spirit, you would open our eyes to behold who you are, that you would show us yourself in your word, and that as a result, we would be made more like Jesus. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. I want to focus this morning on verses 5 through 8 and on the problem of human sin and on God's grief over human sin. But before we go there, we, I do want to touch on verses 1 through 4 because probably this is a passage when you come to it in your Bible reading plan, which causes you to raise an eyebrow or maybe both. <laughs> what on earth is going on here? In Genesis 6, verses 1 through 4. And I want to talk about these verses. Um, one commentator I read this week said that these four verses are the most obscure and difficult to understand, perhaps, in the Old Testament. Um, and there's various interpretations, various ideas as to what's going on here. Um, and so I want to lay out sort of two options that people have tossed around. And I want to tell you the one I... I'm convinced of hesitantly, <laughs> okay? Um, this is, passage is difficult to understand, um, but let's do our best. So we're told that when man was multiplying on the face of the land, these are in the days before the flood, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and took them as wives, and that apparently out of these marriages, out of these unions, came what are called the Nephilim, which are described as the mighty men of old, the men of renown. 
Okay, so there's all these tales in the ancient world, in the cultures around Israel, about these mighty men, these Nephilim, who are um, physically powerful men, kind of rulers among men. Um, and there's all kinds of rumors in the nations around Israel that these are like sons of the gods or something like that, kind of like a Hercules figure. Um, and so what Moses is doing is he's explaining those tales. Right? He's saying, you've heard about these mighty men, these men of renown, these Nephilim. Let me tell you how they fit in the real story. Let me tell you who they are. Okay? And he says that they're a result of this, these relationships between the sons of God and the daughters of men. And the key question in this passage is, who are the sons of God? Who are the sons of God? Moses uses the term, but he doesn't explain it for us. He doesn't say, oh, and by the way, the sons of God are, he just says the sons of God. And there's two sort of major interpretations of, of who these men are. Um, and both of them hold water, okay? I think both of them can potentially fit the passage. That's why I'm going to lay out both of them for you, and you can think through these things yourself. One interpretation is that these sons of men are human men, okay? Um, and that the thing that distinguishes them from the these sons of God are, are men, and that the thing that distinguishes them from the daughters of man is that the sons of God are sons of Seth and that the daughters of man are of Cain's line. You remember from previous weeks, um, Moses is pretty clear about the distinction between Seth and his descendants. Remember, Seth is one of the sons of Adam and Seth is the one who's following the Lord. Right? And his descendants have, have a kind of record of faithfulness to God. They're not perfect, but they sort of stumblingly, they're following the Lord. And then, on the other hand, we have Cain, who's in absolute rebellion against God, and his descendants only tend to multiply his sin. And so, this interpretation would say, what, what's going on here is that these men from Seth's line are going astray. Right? They're looking over at this, the ungodly line of Cain and saying, that looks pretty good, and marrying with godless women who are leading them astray. Okay, it's a very common interpretation. Um, it can bear some weight. I'm not quite convinced of it, and that's because of the term sons of God. Okay, this term sons of God, it's not defined by Moses, but it is used a number of times elsewhere in the Old Testament, including in the book of Job. And pretty much everywhere this term, sons of God, is used, it's used of angelic beings. Okay. Angelic beings. Um, and so I think what's being indicated here is that in the days before Noah, fallen angels had some kind of marital relationship with human women. Now that is not explained for us. We're not told what that looked like. We're not told any details we're simply told that the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and took their as their wives any they chose. So, the objection to this view is, well, how can spiritual beings engage in that kind of relationship with human beings, physical beings, right? The passage doesn't explain that for us. It doesn't lay it out. Um, it, it, is, it assumes we know who the sons of God are and assumes we know everything about the Nephilim. It's almost just a passing comment. 
Um, so I think that's what's being referred to. Um, but either of those interpretations could fit. Either of those interpretations, though, is going to point us in the same direction. And either of those interpretations is going to show us in the days before Noah, something was going very wrong on the earth. Right? Whether what's being referred to here is angelic sin or whether what's being referred to here is the sin of the sons of Seth, it's obvious that something has short-circuited in the order of creation. Something's gone wrong. The angels are in rebellion. Seth and his descendants are in rebellion. Things are going very wrong. Okay. And the way the Lord responds in verse 3 is that the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh his days shall be 120 years. So whatever was going on here, the way the Lord responds is actually by limiting human lifetimes to 120 years. It doesn't happen immediately. We've got a couple of long lives right after the days of Noah, but relatively quickly you see human lives shorten to what we understand today, right? Hardly anyone lives up to 120 and really no one past 120 years. That one of the Lord's responses to the brokenness of the world is actually just to limit human beings and our, our lifetimes. If, if we're going to live in sin and destroy ourselves and each other all our lives, then he's going to do some damage control, right? We can, only, we can only be doing this for so long. In verse 5, the, the issue becomes even clearer. And I want to focus this morning on verses 5 through 8. If you have questions on verses 1 through 4, I'm happy to field those for you, and I can give you all kinds of reading material. But I want to focus this morning on verses 5 through 8. And we're going to see here the Lord deal with sin. And it sort of comes in three acts. First, the Lord sees the wickedness of man. Then the Lord is sorry that he made man. And then third, the Lord speaks his judgment. Okay, so he sees, he's sorry, and then he speaks. First, the Lord sees, verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, it's, it's not as though the Lord wasn't aware and then he turned around in surprise. Oh, man, wow, things have gone wrong. What Moses is getting at here is he's, he's showing us that the Lord sees. That the Lord knows the wickedness and the sinfulness of human beings. And what did he see? That the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Right, so that in the days of Noah, it's not that people were merely dabbling with sin, right? good days, bad days. It's that every intention of their hearts was only evil continually. But the problem of our sinfulness, right, the problem of human rebellion, isn't, isn't merely that we occasionally slip up. It's maybe how we'd like to convince ourselves um, we are. 
It's actually that we as a human race are fundamentally in rebellion against God. That every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And maybe... Maybe we'd like to think, well, that was in Noah's day, and we're not quite that bad today, right? <laughs> not, not every inclination of our heart, only evil continually. But in fact, this is how Paul speaks in Romans 3. Not just about the sin in Noah's day, but about all human sin. Romans 3, starting in verse 10, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. That our situation, apart from the grace of Christ, is a fundamental rebellion against God. And this is true, too, even if outwardly, in some ways, a person's life displays some apparently good deeds, right? So when, when you hear a sentence like, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, maybe you think of your neighbor down the road who's not a Christian, um, but um, she goes to work, she's a good citizen, and she, um, she maybe volunteers at the food pantry, like, she's part of the PTA, like, involved in their community. It's like, well, every inclination of their thought, their hearts, only evil continually? It's like, isn't that a little bit of an overstatement? And the thing that we're, the short circuit, right, why that doesn't make sense to us is that we don't understand the nature of evil. We don't understand the nature of evil. We think that as long as a, as a person is showing some kind of good deeds towards their neighbor, they're not totally opposed to the will of God. But the fact is that the root of human sinfulness, human evil, is of rejecting and denying and rebelling against our Creator. A lifetime of PTA meetings done in rebellion against the creator of the universe is sin. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it's not just that the Lord sees the sins of the world, it's also that the Lord sees the wickedness in our own hearts. The Lord sees and this is something we're intensely uncomfortable with. Right? You go all the way back to the garden. God came into the garden after Adam and Eve had sinned, and what are they doing? They're hiding and they're covering themselves because they're terrified that God will see them. And this same tendency towards God avoidance, towards hiding from God is in our hearts still today. We don't want to be seen because we, we know deep down, even if we'd say otherwise, that we are sinners in the hands of a holy God. 
The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord, we're told, not only did he see sin, he was sorry that he had made man on the earth. And it grieved him to his heart. You can hear the sorrow in, in these words, right? This is, <laughs> Genesis 1 and 2 wasn't that long ago, right? We can remember God made man and woman in the beginning and it was good, right? After every act of creation, right, God made the land and the seas and the sun and the moon and the stars. He said, this is so good. And then on the last day, after creating mankind, the crown of creation, what did God say? This is very good. This is so good. And how did it come, how did we come to the point where the Lord is saying, I'm so, I wish I hadn't done that. The Lord was sorry that he'd made man on the earth. And we should be clear here, it's not that the Lord um, couldn't see it coming. It's not like he's looking back and saying, oh, I shouldn't have done that, right? The, the Lord's sovereign, he knows all things, right? he's all powerful. It's not that the Lord made a mistake. He, he knew what he was doing, and, and in a real way, he knew what Adam and Eve would do, and yet he made us anyways. And that's, that's the love of God for humanity, right? Knowing that we would run away from him, he made us anyways, and we'll get there, but has made a way for us to be saved from ourselves. But in a real sense, we're told that the Lord was sorry that he'd made man on the earth. In a real sense, the Lord was grieved. Grieved. Because humanity had taken this wonderful world that he'd made and trashed it. Um, when my parents were first married, they bought an old farmhouse in, uh, in Livermore, Maine. And it was run down. It was just falling into the ground. And um, it, it needed to be totally gutted, top to bottom. And so um, they worked at it year after year, and they had a lot of help from friends and, and family. And my parents didn't make a lot of money um, in those early years. My, my mom stayed home with us kids, and my dad was a school teacher and not making a ton. Um, but he did most of the work and scraped together enough that that over the course of years, this house went from sort of falling in to being beautifully restored. It's this beautiful um, New England Cape house. And then my parents sold it. And for years, we would, we would drive past it just to, my parents wanted to check in. It's like a baby, right? It's like it's another one of their children, wanted to see how, how things were faring. Uh, but then over the years, we stopped driving past um, because people had bought the house who were not caring for it. And it was falling into the ground again, not literally. but. And then just a few years ago, it went up on the market, and we saw pictures of the inside. It's unrecognizable, just a total disregard for the, the beauty and the care of this, of this house. As a kind of grief there, 
seeing something beautiful, something good, that your hands have worked on, destroyed. And so maybe we can get there a picture of the kind of grief that God feels over sin. Fundamentally, what we do when we sin, when we turn from the will of God, is we take the good things that he's made and we abuse them. We use them wrongly, not according to his design. Right? We take the house he's built for us and we trash it and we put graffiti on the walls. Right? And we throw black paint over all of it. The Lord was sorry that he'd made men on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. This should teach us a couple of things. First of all, it should encourage us. And here's why. Because sometimes we can look around at the world and see stuff that grieves our hearts, right, on the news, and, and wonder and cry out, Lord, are you paying attention to this? Are you going to do anything about this? And sometimes we can doubt. It's like, Lord, where are you? Do you even, do you even see and we should be assured, we should know that even in some, in some moments, we might be even in an accusatory mode of assuming, I think I care more about this than you do, Lord. And that is never true. It is never true. God grieves over the brokenness of the world. God grieves over the wickedness of sin. He grieves over war and tragedy and mass shootings. His heart breaks with the brokenness of this world. He grieved God to his heart. And we should, we should know that not only does God grieve over sin out there, which in some ways is more convenient for us to think about, but God grieves over the sin in here. Because the fact is, it's, it's not merely that we have sins or that we commit sins, almost like sin is an accessory we pick up sometimes and sometimes leave behind. It's that we are sinners. Where does sin come from? It comes from us. It comes from our hearts. And God grieves over your sin. He grieves over my sin. His heart is set against sin because it's we're the vandals. We're the ones who've bought the house and trashed it. And we like to do it. We like doing it. It's not just that we... Lord was sorry that he'd made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart grieved him to his heart. Do you know that the Lord grieves over your sin? Do you understand that God is angry over sin? He's not just passive, right? If, if God was a, an uncaring landlord like one I had in college, we had, a tr we had a house that was already trashed before we moved into it and it was falling to the ground and the landlord never cared. Right? It's convenient for us because the rent was cheap. But God's not like that. He cares about this world that he's made. He cares about us. God loves the world. He loves this good creation. And he is grieved. He is 
angry that we have taken it into our hands to trash the place. It's very easy to treat sin lightly, especially in our generation, the kind of levity just to throw out the will of God. Your sin, my sin, grieves the heart of God. And he's committed to take action about it. The Lord saw the wickedness of man. The Lord was sorry that he had made man. And in verse 7, so the Lord said, I will blot out man. I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. God is not a passive landlord who will allow his creation to be ransacked forever. God's hatred of sin will manifest itself in judgment on sin, and the Lord will rid this world of sin and wickedness. He did it in Noah's day, sparing only eight, and even these righteous ones carried on the tradition of sin. And the Lord, after the flood, we'll talk more about this in the next few weeks, made a covenant with Noah, right, that he wasn't going to flood the world in judgment again. But the Lord has promised, and he will not change his mind, that a day of judgment is coming. Second Peter 3. No, this is the Apostle Peter Beginning in verse 3, know this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water, and through water, by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. He's talking about the flood. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist, post-flood, are being stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. As God saw fit to bring judgment upon the evil world in Noah's day, so God has determined that a day of judgment will come, that Christ will return, and he will come with judgment and with fire. And knowing our own sin, knowing that God sees our sin, knowing that God sees the hidden depths of our hearts, knowing that God is angry at sin, and knowing that in ourselves, if that day was today and we knew not Christ, we would be done with, cast out into the outer darkness. The question becomes, how might I be saved? 
from the wrath of God against sin. If I'm the problem, and if there's another flood coming, not of water but of fire, how might I be saved? What ark is there for me? Is there one? These eight verses are somewhat heavy, dark, but at the end there's, there's light. Genesis 6 verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. In Noah's day, there was a way made for those who had faith in God, those who believed his word, to get on the ark and get through the flood and to have the judgment of God pass over them, to be saved through death and into new life. And it is the great and the amazing news of Jesus Christ that God is not only holy and just, he is also merciful and gracious. That God is not only angry at sin, he deeply loves sinners. And he's shown us that love most tangibly, most palpably in the person of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Peter, whom we just read, speaking about the judgment to come, also speaks about a way through in 1 Peter. First Peter chapter three. And he compares the ark to Jesus. First Peter three, verse 20. Halfway through the verse, he says that while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. He's like, remember the ark? Remember eight people were brought through the water, through judgment, through death, by the mercy of God, that God told them ahead of time, it's coming, here's the way through, here's how you can be saved. And Peter says in verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Right? He appeals to the, the image of baptism. It's got water in common here, right? In the days of Noah, they were saved through the waters of judgment into life on a, a new lease on earth, right? And in the same way, through Jesus... And through his death and his resurrection, which we symbolize in baptism, we are saved through the waters and into new life. Right? By faith in Jesus Christ. The amazing news of the gospel is that even though God is angry at sin, God loves sinners, and that Jesus Christ, the incarnate God, came into the world and actually bore the anger of God on the cross, bore the wrath of God. God himself bore the penalty due our sins so that we sinners could be freed. 
Christ died in our place so that we might participate in his resurrection. He died for sins so that we could be forgiven. That's what we symbolize in baptism, that we actually die with Christ, that there's, we're dead to our old selves. We're dead to sin. It's been taken from us, and we've been made new and alive in Jesus Christ, not because we're great at all, right? But because we actually deserve the flood, but Christ took it from us, so that's why we can come out of the water. It's a sobering passage, this. Genesis 6, 1 through 8. But there's hope at the end. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And this is how you'll... You'll see this over and over again in scripture. This is actually, this is the way it is with the story of creation that God is telling. That God is righteous, he is holy, he is angry at sin. But the theme of the story that he's telling always tends towards redemption, tends towards salvation. And that's what's coming. Jesus is coming again. I'll ask the deacons to come up at at this time and we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Um, In some ways, I wish we could celebrate the Lord's Supper every week because it's such a wonderful reminder at the end of every service together, whatever whatever it was that we've looked at in the Word of God, the goodness and the love of Jesus Christ, right? That as the whole story of redemption, the whole story of history is tending towards salvation in Jesus Christ, so too our our worship gathering this morning, the whole thing's moving towards Jesus, towards the cross, and towards the love that he's shown us. And in the supper that we're we're gonna participate in, there'll be more lunch after, after the service, but... But with the bread and with the cup, what we're saying as Christians is, Jesus' body that was broken, I need it. Jesus' blood that was shed, I need it. I'm a sinner and I'm in need of a Savior, but Jesus is more than enough. His body broken, that was for me. His blood shed, that was for me. And in him, I'm forgiven, I'm made a child of God, I'm given new life and the promise of eternal life. And all that we proclaim with the bread and with the cup. Um, I like to put it out there every time we celebrate the supper that this is a, this is a family meal. This is for Christians. Okay? This, this meal is for people who've put their faith in Jesus Christ and trusted him totally as their Savior and Lord. And so... If that's not you, if you're not a Christian, I'd encourage you to just fold your hands in your lap as the, the, the deacons come by um, and, uh, and, and don't partake. But having said that, I want you to know that there's an open invitation from Jesus. It's Jesus says in his word, any who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. Salvation in Jesus is open to any who would come. And if you have not come to him, if you haven't trusted in him, if 
you're still bearing the burden of your sins and bearing the fear of judgment, I want you to know you don't have to bear that anymore. If you will but come to Jesus, he will lift it all. John 6, beginning in verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Verse 39, this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, says Jesus to us today, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Uh, Kevin, would you pray for us as we go to eat the bread?